0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad.
1: Who would hold the Trump mantle? There are many people who align themselves with his politics and who seem to have ambitions at that level. I mean, I'd mean, be curious to see what Ted Cruz does, Tom Cotton, etc. But do they have the personality to be as effective as Donald Trump? I think that is unclear. Do members of his family have political ambitions? I think it will be very interesting to see just how long the Republican Party remains the party of Trump, which it is now.
0: Sarah Just, executive producer of PBS NewsHour on the never-ending 2020 election, the pandemic, the transition in Washington, and reinventing the nightly news overnight into a well-oiled remote work machine. Stay with us. Subscribe to Full Disclosure on NPR One, Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. We now air in the Beltway on WERA 96.7 FM, Sunday mornings at 11. Tune in. Joining me is Sarah Just, executive producer of PBS NewsHour, which she joined in 2014 after 25 years at ABC News, more than half of which was spent on Nightline with Ted Koppel. How are you, Sarah?
1: Doing well, Robin. Having gotten some sleep after the election marathon. Feeling better.
0: (laughs) Well, to timestamp everything, we're more than a week uh, removed from the 2020 presidential election. And the incumbent, Donald Trump, has since refused to uh, concede in spite of states coming in and the AP calling it. And I know you guys had to walk a very delicate uh, walk uh, in the, the, the many evenings since. But I would like to kind of rewind it back and... Have you channel your inner Bill Belichick? I know you're a massive, <laughs> you know, Patriots fan. Tragically, how did you roll up your sweatshirt sleeves two weeks ago and prepare the staff in the kind of the decision tree of the thousand different outcomes that we could have had?
1: Oh, that's that's an interesting analogy. Um, despite the Patriots' miserable win loss record this year, um, the for, I, really the news hour team has been working towards this all year, uh, and, uh, planning and preparing. We're all, you know, good producers are always planning for, um, various potential outcomes, um, in terms of how they are, are, are planning and our production would have to adjust. And so the election, um, certainly is like no election I've ever covered or any of us has ever witnessed before. But for the news hour, the planning was very much the same, um, reporting on, um, events and planning for possible outcomes. So we spent a lot more time this year than we have in years past thinking about ballot counting and having uh, legal experts uh, consult with us uh, around that. We spent a lot more time being transparent about how races are called with the Associated Press, is uh, who we work with, and, and explaining that, really, that we have done in elections past, although the actual process wasn't very different. The biggest change, of course, this year it was really the pandemic and the fact that so many of our staff was scattered and re- working remotely. We had a much, much smaller footprint in our studio, um, but, uh, but it worked, uh, and uh, that's thanks to uh, months of work that has gone on to making the NewsHour a mostly remote television program production since March. So the
0: peculiar things, I remember watching the returns come in with my son on Tuesday night, and we warned him this is the first election that he's watching. Listen, you might not learn a lot tonight because, alas, so many of the ballots, millions of ballots came in via absentee method. We're in the throes of a pandemic. And indeed, you had what some people, including Bernie Sanders, warned about was this sort of red mirage. If you just pay attention to the day of votes, you're going to get one vibe Tuesday night and maybe even Wednesday morning. And that entire narrative, even though I think that word "narrative" should be shot into the sun and destroyed, that <laughs> has changed in the week since, as the absentee ballots have come in, and you've seen the the slow but sure gears of, of ballot counting turn.
1: It really depends on the state's law. Some states, like Pennsylvania, couldn't start counting those ballots by their own state laws until election night, and so we, the early vote wasn't and it wasn't counted. Um, before their polls closed, whereas other states like Florida and Ohio were able to count their early vote earlier and make a, a call early. We tried to explain that to our audience um, through that night and in the many days, you know, ahead of time and, have, and that have followed that Really, what we have in this country is a patch—you know, our, our, our election is, is for nationwide office in the presidency, but our laws about how those ballots are counted, uh, when, et cetera, are, are statewide, and so they're different. Um, and uh, But, you know, so far, we've not seen really any sign that those systems have failed. They've really worked as expected and as planned.
0: Sarah, if we were having cocktail parties right now and gearing up for Thanksgiving and the holiday season and all the Christmas parties, I'm sure everybody would be buttonholing you and your staff and Lisa— and your D.C. people and saying, again, how did the polls get it so wrong? And and everybody's trying to do a mea culpa. I read something in The Economist magazine this morning, which had with more than a 90 degree of certainty uh, outcome that uh, Biden, when all said and done, would have more than 350 electoral votes. What is your answer to that? And and how kind of uh, hardened or jaundiced are you after what happened, not just in 2020, but in 2016?
1: I think all of us who who study public opinion surveys are really... Um, having to take a, um, a a step back to look at the situation. Obviously, a lot of what the pollsters had um, measured has turned out to be the case. Um, Biden uh, has won by a large margin in the popular vote. That's what the national polls represent. Um, and the statewide polls, some have been far less reliable, many. And um, and I think that there's going to be a, a real um, examination, even more so than in 2016, about what is it about today's electorate that makes it hard to poll? Is it that people don't want to answer the phones or do the surveys online, etc.? Uh, that pollsters put out there are there too many? Um, you know, we get I get random spam phone calls from pollsters too, and I'm, you know, sometimes hesitant. To, sometimes they're about commercial things, etc. You don't want to answer them, um, or is there something about voters uh, who? Um, Uh, And how they answer their transparency or how they're reached, if they're reached, I think that's going to have to be studied. And I think for a lot of public opinion survey work, social science that follows out of it, there's a lot to be learned. And I think we're just digging into into that now. But certainly it is um, it is telling that those uh, that many of the polls did not hold up, but some did. Many, many did. So uh, it's really trying to parse what's what was the difference? What were the factors that made some polls less reliable and some polls more reliable?
0: Of all the results that have come in in the week plus since, pro forma, certain, or otherwise, which particularly stand out to you or re- really surprise you that you did not you did not prepare for, you did not model for?
1: For the outcome, you mean?
0: Outcomes. Any state, any individual candidate, an extent, a margin, maybe something that happened in the House. Give you an idea. I'm, I'm blindsided by what happened in Maine. You were led to believe that it was fate accompli that that uh, Susan Collins was going to lose her seat as the, the, the senator in Maine. She was really controversial after the Kavanaugh confirmation. She had a super well-funded uh, Democratic competitor. And even though that state overwhelmingly went for Biden, maybe with one electoral vote breaking off for Trump, people did split their tickets for Susan Collins.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, in a way, um, I, I don't find Maine quite as surprising because you do have this really remarkable red and blue split in that state. The northern kind of western part of the state is so much more red than the southern eastern part of the state. I, I thought the most surprising one was Jamie Harrison's dramatic loss in South Carolina. There was to Lindsey Graham. The polls were not showing that um, in those statewide polls. And I think, you know, as I mentioned, we do have to dig into what is what is it about the polling in that state that... Um, made it um not reflect what the outcome was, um and also there was so much money Jamie Harrison spent overspent Lindsey Graham by so much, and yet um uh it was it was not even anywhere close to close on the other hand, I don't think it's really a surprise that South Carolina has sent a republican senator and, and a well-known incumbent back to this to washington um but Jamie Harrison did seem like he was uh, competing more in the days, uh, you know, if you were to believe the public opinion polls, um, beforehand, and certainly he was all over the airwaves and, and that kind of thing. But, you know, South Carolina staunchly read and, and sent Lindsey Graham back to Washington. But, but it was interesting to see that one, I thought.
0: So I'm assuming you were at ABC's nightline during the 1992 election when Ross Perot was running and Bill Clinton, yeah. uh, took an unlikely, uh, chunk of, of Southern states, including Georgia and winning that plurality. And it was somewhat of an upset against the incumbent uh, George Bush 41. Uh, what, what, what's kind of similar here? Did you expect Georgia to come out in the way that it did? And of course that hasn't been officialized yet by maybe some of the, some of the people you are tracking, but when and if Biden gets the votes in Georgia, that will be the first time since what Clinton wanted in 92.
1: Right. I mean, it is, it's, I do remember that race very well. It was really the first presidential race I covered for national outlet and, and the, um, Obviously, the big difference there was the third party candidate and the degree to which that made a difference in that race. Um, And also that a southerner was running um, at that time. Um, And so I think one of the, you know, there are a lot of circumstances that are different. But one of the things that makes uh, our understanding of a place like Georgia so different today is the way that demographics have changed in that state. And it has changed in many southern states. I mean, look at Texas, Um, the demographics uh for a more diverse electorate are changing and and for the republicans um who turned out uh you know white voters largely that is something to think about for the future um but uh certainly georgia has uh you know I, I think before the election a lot of us cynical reporters were saying well Georgia is never going to go blue Texas is never going to go blue Texas did not Florida you know is the perennial swing but ten has now for three cycles gone red I think that the, or more of the cycles has gone red the the uh, Georgia is the surprise um, and I think that that is um, going to be really interesting to see how that plays out in the very close Senate races um, still to come
0: I have to ask you did North Carolina surprise you as well, because the polling certainly suggested that it was doable not just for Biden to win that state—I think Obama won it the first go-around in 2008—but that it would have been a Senate pickup as well, and even though the—I guess— I don't know if the AP has called it officially since there's still some counting going on, but it wasn't all that close for Biden in the end.
1: It's hard to say which way that's going right now in, in North Carolina, Virginia. Certainly, you know, was was um, more purple and sometimes uh, red um, during for many years, and now seems to be firmly in the Democrats' column and the blue column in, at the presidential race, and so that's. Um, that's going to be really interesting to see in North Carolina if there's if there's movement there I think Democrats had hoped for that this year Democrats had hoped that North Carolina would be more purple um, but if the demographics are changing there or the mood is changing there uh, it hasn't changed enough to move the needle on um, big Senate race apparently or or the presidential race although at this time that we're talking it's not it's not fully called And then
0: finally on Arizona. Uh, that was something that was really a bee kind of in the White House's bonnet that night that Fox News called it for Arizona. But it, it's a it's a pretty big victory if you consider the Senate gain there and that this this at least changed the momentum story for Biden on the night of the election, the week of the election.
1: Right. That's a it, Arizona is fascinating. And I think one of the things that. Um, uh we will have to see in Arizona in the 2022 midterms or 2024 presidential races, whether or not Arizona has indeed turned purple and blue or whether or not with, you know, the Senator Mark Kelly now being elected there as a Democrat as well as the presidential race going to Biden. Um Was this about party or was this about Donald Trump? Was this an anti-Trump vote in Arizona uh, and pro, you know, um Mark Kelly, who was a, it was a popular candidate there, in Arizona. Of course, we saw Cindy McCain, the wife of the late uh, Senator John McCain from Arizona, uh, campaigning for Joe Biden, uh, for Mark Kelly, and um, it's and and all the criticism the president had of you know the beloved uh, former senator there, late Senator John McCain. It, it it's unclear whether or not those factors or there are, are kind of Trump factors are, are going on in Arizona, or whether or not there's really a change in demographics. And
0: before we leave Georgia, which is still uh, hotly, hotly contested, you're getting a manual recount by the secretary of state there. But, uh, There are going to be two Senate runoffs, and indeed, at least in theory, control of the Senate could be determined by these two elections in early January. How much money do you think is going to be plowed into that system? What is the lesson from the money that didn't work in Maine, in South Carolina, in Kentucky, maybe in Texas? And uh, what are your predictions? Do the the Democrats really have a chance of taking the momentum, assume the Electoral College victory holds, and and channeling that into an unlikely kind of off-season victory?
1: Well, it's certainly going to be a good story. And as journalists, that's what we always want. It's going to be a good story. And it's probably a really good time to own a local television or radio station in the state of Georgia. You're going to be flooded with ad dollars. Um, and so that is going to be fascinating to watch. But as we saw in the races you mentioned, just ad dollars alone are not enough to win elections, uh, certainly in this climate and maybe even in the pandemic. Getting the vote out and Stacey Abrams um, in Georgia has been a really uh, effective in changing the dynamics there, it seems, with, with that effort. And we'll see how much that happens. I think both parties are going to be incredibly motivated to get out the vote uh, in that state for both of those races because control of the Senate hangs in the balance. Um, and uh, we've never seen races really um, uh, this late in the cycle uh, affecting the outcome of, of, of party control. So it's going to be just fascinating you know, again, Georgia's been pretty red for a long time. So I think Democrats have an uphill battle, but it'll be very interesting to see.
0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Sarah Just, executive producer of PBS NewsHour, uh, where you've been for six years after a quarter century at ABC News, uh, 17 years of which were spent on Nightline with Ted Koppel. And uh, by way of disclosure, I learned English substantially watching Nightline with my parents 40 years ago when it covered the hostage crisis. So, uh, props to Ted Koppel. I'm sure you guys are still in touch. Tell me about the role that Donald Trump still plays. I mean, he did take more than 70 million popular votes. He does have political capital coming out of this. He's someone who's always parlayed uh, whatever vote count he got or whatever inauguration attendance he did get into a, a bigger a bigger number. That's part of his kind of his reputation, his marketing reputation. Uh, What can he and he cannot do after the interregnum? I mean, for example, are congressmen afraid that he's going to primary against them in 2022 or 2024 if they don't come out and support this this, uh, this backlash right now?
1: Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see. We've not seen... You know, former presidents often are less political or go into complete, you know, non-political territory for a good period of time and don't criticize their successor. I think it's fair to say no one expects that from Donald Trump, um, but you know, how influential he'll remain after this really, you know, staggering loss of w- after one term uh, as president, um, is it remains to be seen. He, I, I think what we're seeing right now it, with Republican senators, especially if so few of them willing to acknowledge that Joe Biden is the president elect and that Donald Trump does not have a legitimate path to overturning those results from any of the evidence we've seen so far anyway, uh, is, is uh, a measure of how much uh there is concern that Donald Trump's sway with with the republican um loyal voters uh will remain this is um going to be so fascinating to see in the coming elections and whether or not for instance, even Donald Trump runs again. If he loses, remember constitutionally, he can run again in twenty twenty four. He will be seventy eight years old, but that's a, and that's quite old to run for president. But that's Joe Biden's age, <laughs> so it's not out of the realm of possibilities. Unusual. We've never seen really anything recently in recent American history about that. Um, but it could happen. And then there will be questions about how you know influential he remains. There's some speculation that he might try to run his own television station, uh, television network rather, media network. Um, there's some you know, question about who would hold the Trump mantle. There are many people who align themselves with his politics and who seem to have ambitions at that level. I mean, I'd be curious to see what Ted Cruz does, Tom Cotton, etc. But do they have the personality to be as effective as Donald Trump? I think that is unclear. Do members of his family have political ambitions? I think it will be very interesting to see just how long the Republican Party remains the party of Trump, which it is now.
0: And what is Joe Biden, assuming he's president-elect and we are using the term president-elect now, what is his political capital? After all, he, his party loses seats in the House, which was largely unexpected. Uh, the outcome of them maybe taking back the, the Senate by one or two seats did not happen. Uh, you had Donald Trump and the Republican Senate install a third Supreme Court uh, appointee from that administration. What can he do coming into his first hundred days? If you think back to Trump, He had the Senate and the House. If you think back to Obama in 2008, uh, you know, people who are elected, especially these change candidates, come in with that congressional mandate that Biden doesn't seem to have now.
1: It is uh, a different kind of mandate. Certainly, winning the White House is a massive political victory for any you know, party. Um, the way um, you know we've seen over the last um, several years is with so much you know of it has been gridlock, or so much of it has been uh, a Congress that um, uh, has a hard time getting anything done. Um, in a bipartisan way that the, the executive branches become even more powerful. So certainly that is a factor um, and will be. But um, I think one of the things that would be interesting to see is the um – degree to which Joe Biden, who has you know campaigned on the fact that he has been a compromiser when he was in the Senate, he has worked with people across the aisle and uh, in many ways and, and tried to bridge divisions within his own party, which are going to be significant to watch as well. Um, that has been a, a, a strength of his career and that he um, uh, has touted and his followers have touted. But it's a question really now in this political climate, how effective can he be at that? That will be fascinating to see.
0: Now, Abigail Spanberger, the Democratic congresswoman, she's my congresswoman here in the Virginia 7th. You saw the audio. You heard the audio that leaked uh, with her call following uh, the House losses by the Democratic Party. There seems to be this this idea out there that it's kind of the Spanbergerian worldview versus the AOC and Squad worldview, where the latter is saying you really need to not take your base for granted. African-Americans, women of color, uh, minorities overwhelmingly put this president-elect over the hump, where Spamberger is saying, we need to vanquish the word socialist from our vocabulary. You can't be talking about defunding the police. Uh, it seems to be a, a kind of an incipient battle for for uh, the Biden administration's mindshare.
1: I think it's going to be really interesting. Both parties are facing a, a, a real um, moment of figuring out what they want to stand for, uh, which parts of their party are. Um, are more powerful. Uh, What Spanberger said was interesting. I also thought um, uh, Senator Clyburn in South Carolina gave – I mean Congressman Clyburn gave an interesting um, interview earlier this week um, and uh, talked about that as well, obviously still smarting from the uh, loss um, in – uh, in that state for Senate um, and uh, knowing that that is going to be um, uh, not easy to, um, uh, you know, to address, he was really pushing back at the idea um, of uh, some of the more progressive um, voices being more influential um he was um very concerned uh about the influence of the the defund the police movement uh, uh, it, it seems and so or what that statement or what that slogan meant um for voters and who it turned off and who it engaged and i think that's a really interesting you know he's a majority whip he's an important um voice in the party um and certainly nobody's idea of a of a conservative Democrat, um, but he's, um, he's practical. And so he's, he's raising those alarm bells. And so I think we're going to see both parties looking at themselves and their um, priorities. Uh, and, uh, and, and Biden is going to uh, have a challenge on his hands as our Republicans in terms of trying to keep the coalitions together.
0: Now, Sarah just, it'd be one thing if we'd be talking about this election kind of in a garden variety backdrop. I don't even know if that metaphor makes sense, but we are of course in the throes of this, Uh, unprecedented kind of once-in-a-hundred-year pandemic. We have uh, 10.5 million cases in the United States, 240,000 deaths, uh, 52 million cases worldwide. The the flare-ups are pretty uh, shocking if you look regionally what's happening now. The New York Times is reporting today that U.S. hospitalization's top 61,000, which is a record, and and state leaders are urging residents to stay home ahead of uh, holiday time and holiday travel and and people maybe coming back from college. this is uh, certainly no playbook for understanding, and this is all happening while the General Services Administration is refusing to hand the keys of of transition over to the Biden people, even though Biden has now picked out some of his point people on on the COVID response team. Uh, what's your take, and what else are you hearing that we should be paying attention to?
1: Well, certainly the pandemic uh, is hitting. You know, again, it, just numbers that are staggering, and and so. So tragic um, and there's certainly fatigue to the lockdowns uh, and frustration and it's become a political thing um, you know if, if Joe Biden has said uh, that he would impose stronger um, measures to try to beat back the pandemic, it's I think it's unclear how much that will be followed um, and in some places in the country. And so I think that'll be really interesting to see, but it's concerning. I think all of us, every one of us has decisions to make. I know I do in my family in terms of holidays and seeing family, et cetera. It's painful, um, but we've, we, the degree to which that has been um, impacting politics has been so interesting. We saw in the public uh, voter service that the AP did um, that of people who voted that um, the pandemic was a much bigger, was listed as a much bigger issue for Democrats who voted than for Republicans. Um, and so, um, you know, how this plays out politically will be interesting to see. But there's no question we're facing a monumental um, challenge uh, in the months ahead as these hospitalizations spike and, and infection rate spikes. I was just reading today that one in 1500 people in South Dakota is in the hospital with COVID. I mean, it's truly staggering um, and concerning. And so I think we're, we, you know, we've, the country has been so focused on politics, but um, as that recedes, the focus on this pandemic and what can be done and how, who is suffering and how that can be addressed, um, is, it's got to come in sharper focus. Sarah,
0: how is it a partisan issue? This—I'm not trying to be coy, but you would think it all boils down to self-preservation. And when you've seen members of your community, and when you're at, at the very least the annoyance of not being able to see family members, or homeschooling is a very real reality. In spite of that, uh, the, the, you know, this in this environment in this year, we've been able to make it look at it as a kind of a blue versus red state issue.
1: Yeah, it's really stunning to see. I mean, mask wearing—you know—is a is a public health measure, not a partisan issue, but has become one uh, in many parts of the country. And we see it, you know, you just go for a drive, uh, uh, you know, from where you lived, you might see a very different um, mask, um, you know, uh, willingness to wear masks, very different in different parts of the country, different communities, uh, and very different attitudes. You know, if you walked into a store with a mask on in some places, you might get um, teased or mocked other stores would throw you out if you weren't wearing a mask. so um, I think that is where we are it's partisan it's cultural, it's sad um, I think um, as we as we look at it because people are dying but um, uh, it is uh, it's where we are
0: and then another surreal headline that if you told me that you know this this would be the reality after the election, Why the Affordable Care Act is back before the Supreme Court amid a pandemic, I'm seeing on the NewsHour website. Uh, Certain uh, voters might be interested in why the Supreme Court is able to take this up again and what's left to litigate and what the alternative might be.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. Well, there's been, you know, litigation moves through the courts pretty glacially (laughs) by and large. So this isn't a new... Item necessarily you know that's related time the, the timeliness around the election isn't about the election so much but it is the way that these cases move through the courts and the in the court um, the supreme court sounded uh, at least from the questioning there's a, i'm a i'm a supreme court geek myself and i love the tea leaf reading of their of um, listening to their uh, to them hear the arguments and then trying to interpret w- where that means they'll vote. It is not a, an exact science by any means, but I think a lot of reporters who cover the court far more closely all felt that there was a, a sense that they were not leaning towards overturning ACA in that case. But we'll have to see. There's There's been... Um, uh, this has been, you know, hanging over over this election, knowing that this case was on the docket uh, all cycle. It didn't get as much of attention because there were so many other things to talk about. But it is kind of amazing that in the middle of the pandemic, that's what we're we're battling over. But the future of ACA uh, is is something that um, uh, even if the court doesn't touch it now, is going to be very much. Um, uh, on on people's minds, fewer and fewer people are covered by it the the rates are going up. and so I think that for Democrats as well as Republicans the um it's it's an issue that will is likely to draw attention.
0: but suppose the Republicans were to basically hypothetically they were successful in striking it down in the opposition or severability or whatever other kind of boilerplate in there. What is the alternative? this if you're assuming that this administration has another one, two months left on it, they never really put an alternative plan or something to replace the ACA forward. There's been a lot of talk about it. But uh, somebody used the metaphor of the dog finally catching the truck, and then what?
1: Um, I, I think it's... I I think the reporting that we've seen is that there really isn't a momentum around that in the Senate. There's just not consensus about what the alternative has been would be, and that's why it has been in this limbo for so many years. Um, is it's um, what the alternative is um, is very hard to see. Um, certainly the. Trump administration has been fighting to knock it down, including, which would include knocking down the protections of um, the very popular pre existing conditions. Um, so, but, you know, and the president has said, oh, an alternative would include protection for pre existing conditions, but in what form? These are, this is a really technical kind of thing, and it's why ACA was so hard to pass in the first place. is How do you create a um, safety net in this country for health insurance uh, and not, um, Uh, And, and, you know, and and how do you how do you cover that? And what are the costs? I I think it is a a very open question. What would the alternative be? But it doesn't seem like there's political momentum around really knocking it down now. It could change. That could change.
0: And to the extent that you are a self-proclaimed Supreme Court wonk, when and if does this court now with Amy Coney Barrett and the, the majority conservative justices... Take up Roe v. Wade. Uh, what mechanically would have to happen? Would a state have to bring up a? Would somebody have to sue if a state, for example, overreached on on uh, abortion restrictions?
1: Yes, it would. It, would, it needs a case uh, in order for the court to decide. As Amy Comey Barrett talked about in her confirmation hearing, that um, it's you know the court does not just sit there and say, and now we we declare this. Uh, they need a case. It needs to be. Um, uh, to come up through the court system before them. Um, and I don't think that in the near term that's, um, coming, although I, I defer to more <laughs> Supreme Court, better Supreme Court geeks than me. Um, but I, I think that is certainly, uh, a question for, um, the f- coming years uh, around the court. And there are advocates on both sides who are going to look for cases that would, um, uh, that would challenge the, um, the law on that, uh, and and I think we just have to see whether or not this court takes that up. They've they've taken up many other abortion related issues, but not the challenge uh, row specifically in a long time.
0: And I have to ask you, uh, even if Joe Biden were to get the support of the two senators who would, you know, potentially win Georgia in January, and then you get a tied Senate, and Kamala Harris would be the tie breaking vote. So it's a very thin and delicate. Senate that you could take for granted, Uh, court packing and state packing seem to be off the table.
1: It does seem that way. I mean, I think for to the Democrats who had you know dreams of that before the election, this that was really only even a viable conversation if it was even a viable conversation then, because it's such a dramatic move uh, with a dramatic uh, majority in the Senate. But that even this it doesn't look like even if those two Senate seats hold that that would be enough to um make those kinds of changes
0: sarah just of the pbs news hour take me internationally i mean certainly so much attention paid this is the, you know the, 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 this white house has done a great job of, of you know Keeping a tremendous amount of attention on the White House, uh, for better or for worse. Uh, your correspondents have felt it. They've felt it face to face in the White House press room. Uh, but what is kind of being short shrifted internationally right now? Like, for example, uh, that you know, Hong Kong. Let's say this past year or two is kind of quietly, uh, with all the other headlines that we've had, Hong Kong is now effectively uh, its reabsorption by the Republic of China has been. It's a uh, you know by the... the by China, by Beijing proper, has been accelerated by several years. But you're not, you're kind of competing for headlines in the news, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's Israel, whether it's Saudi Arabia, whether what you saw happen in the occupied territories and settlements last week, uh, everything else is kind of being backburned or short shrifted while the world pays attention to this election and the pandemic.
1: If you're watching the PBS news hour, <laughs> you will get a lot of that coverage. In fact, for tonight's program, we have a piece coming about Hong Kong, in fact, and have and I'm really proud of my colleagues who are on our foreign uh, team for, you know, and and our many contributors around the world uh, who uh, report for the NewsHour, um, who have kept, you know, we've continued to make room all through the election and um, for foreign coverage, you know, the really there's been a you know, hot war in Nagorno Karabakh and um, many other parts of the world where important things are happening. So, and and also the way the pandemic is playing out around the world is something um, that we've tried to pay close attention to. Countries that are doing it um, effectively, countries that are struggling, where the the pandemic is. Um, uh, flaring up uh, has, has continued to be something we focus on, but yeah, you're right, absolutely. In general, the oxygen in this country is very much focused on domestic politics, always are, um, but especially, especially now. And I think one of the concerning things, and this is a little bit of uh, you know, I don't want to be alarmist about it, but I think that there, it is. To note that one of the conclusions of the nine eleven commission was that um, the with the lengthy um, delay in calling the two thousand election that there was um, it was an opportunity for our um, uh, enemies to to um, to do work uh, to do uh, to do terrible things, and so I think that you know I think all the people that we've reported on in the um, Pentagon and intelligence community and state department, et cetera, are have their eye on that, um, say they have their eye on that. Um, that is a concern that what, you know, the media attention is one thing, but the bigger concern is that the people who um, protect America for a living are on the ball. And it does, we've not seen any sign that they've, that they've drifted, but, um, you know, sometimes, you know, bad actors will take a, a distracted period as an opportunity to make gains. Um, and uh, uh, that's that's one thing we certainly are look, looking at and always making room for on the PBS Hour's coverage of what's happening around the world. We are we are a really interesting country right now, but we are not the only country in the world by any means.
0: And it's been covered quite a bit in that you see the Dow Jones Industrial Average visiting 30,000, which would be shocking if I told you to start this year. And I I run through this exercise with all of our guests. If we're at a New Year's Eve party and we 're looking at the year ahead you know well you 'd have this pandemic which shuts everything down. you have emptied malls, uh, people not paying rents and everything. home prices would shoot through the roof as their construction shortages. The Dow Jones industrial average would hit thirty thousand even as uh, unemployment hit rates we haven 't seen in decades. Uh, some people are calling this a k shaped recovery and that the k one leg of the K is going up and the other leg is going down a kind of this bifurcation. Of uh, you know the haves and the have-nots even further in the United States. To what extent are you guys covering this even more?
1: Absolutely, that is that is something that um, I think we are are very interested in covering and at the news hour, um, and that is the experience of people in this country, um, you know, particularly particularly in regards to the pandemic, um, who is suffering more, uh, has been. Um, Something we've wanted to focus on, obviously, we've all sadly learned how much um, people of color uh, have been more um, vulnerable to this pandemic and and communities of color, uh, as well as poor communities. We have a program. I mean, we have a story on the program tonight uh, about um, farm workers in the Coachella Va- Valley, for instance, and the pandemic and people who are um uh, providing the food that, that we all rely on in the food chain in this country, um, are, are sometimes our most vulnerable populations. And so keeping an eye on that, shining a light on that. Yes, it's true. The, the stock market, um, has been, you know, kind of remarkable in light of all of these things. And so for a lot of Americans, they're not unemployed. They're not, uh, Facing as many loved ones sick. Um, there's 401ks are okay. Um, it, it is important that we remind them that this country looks very different in, in um, very different places. But sadly, we're seeing, you know, as, as the economy goes on and on, more businesses struggle, more. Um, businesses have layoffs. Um, there is no PPP, um, new round coming from Congress right now, um, that will rescue that. Uh, it's very unclear, you know, what's going to happen to the airline industry that employs so many Americans. Um, we're, you know, and, and so this is a, this is a really critical time and how long these, um, this recovery takes, uh, I just don't think anyone has a timeline yet.
0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Sarah Just, executive producer of PBS NewsHour. Uh, You've been there, Sarah, since 2014. After 25 years at ABC News, you spent a ton of time uh, on Nightline with Ted Koppel. You've covered various presidential elections, and you were in the Washington Bureau for ABC News. Uh, In the... Ten or so minutes we have left with you, I'd love to turn it around and, and you know, walk out journalistically with you on where you were, how you contorted, what you had to do when you realized, let's say, in mid-March, that this is serious. We're all homebound. Uh, is there a playbook for you guys? Is there something you pull off the shelf, an emergency, you know, break in case of emergency thing? If a pandemic hits, how do you keep putting out the nightly news? Tell us what was involved in that.
1: Oh, wow. Well, there was absolutely no playbook, no planning. This was not, this was on nobody's uh, radar, I think, as, as a possibility. If you had asked me in January if, um, you know, the majority of people who work on the PBS News era could do it from their homes, I would have said absolutely not. <laughs> um, we are, we are a daily live, you know, news program and that, and we need to be together. Um, and, uh, you know, we've, we've had very few in our, shop, uh, people working from home prior to this. And now we have almost everybody working from home. We do have a core group of incredibly dedicated, wonderful um, producers and crew who come into the studio um, and make it possible for us to broadcast. Um, But you can see on the air, Judy Woodruff and and our correspondents are largely from home. Um, It is. It was in March. I mean, I can't even... Think about that period without laughing, because we were inventing completely new production models um, for ourselves, and and um, and and talking to our you know com- normally our competitors, our colleagues in the industry, saying how are you doing it? How are you doing it? Because everybody was trying to figure out the right way to do this while producing the program every night. I, I jokingly refer to that as you know trying to try your shoelaces while riding a bicycle. Um, it was it was an intense time, and we made lots of changes. We would have daily meetings uh uh, to just talk through what are we doing on the production side that we can tweak and move and change so it's better looks better sounds better um but you know i'm knock wood or uh, we are grateful we didn't go off the air um you know there's a this is a technical feat uh that we've come up with a new model for producing live television uh and did you know Dozens of hours around the conventions um, and uh, s- special coverage around the election, and all of it in this in this new model. It's thanks to my really creative colleagues, um, producers, engineers, you know, everybody, um, uh, technicians at WETA, uh, the station in Washington, where NewsHour um, works. That we our colleagues there and are in the NewsHour newsroom have been so creative in coming up with solutions that work. It's also thanks to the audience for understanding. I think all of us as television and you know media consuming viewers have been um, getting used to the idea. You can have an interview with somebody on Skype. The picture might not be as crystal clear the audio might not be as crystal clear um and you know sometimes it's far less than crystal clear we're not happy about that but we can make it work um and the audience i think is understanding this is the 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 sort of perfection of television production values, something that that we obsess about in in television and sometimes wonder if the audience really cares about now we know the audience is pretty understanding and forgiving and so the um we do our very best and and we're we're doing it in a way though that's most importantly keeping our colleagues safe. Um, and so that is that is our our top priority.
0: Having said that, you still have to embed correspondence with the president or on Air Force One or people to uh, be in the White House press office, albeit in a distanced way. I mean, uh, there weren't conventions. Maybe that's a cost center that you didn't have to have this year to send an entire crew and set up there the fact that everybody understood that at least much of this on the Democratic side was going to be done remotely. Uh, has, that, has that helped with the kind of the learning curve of, of innovating the show digitally?
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, luckily, our digital colleagues have been innovating for a long time. And a lot of the things that they, you know, and because we're public media, we don't have all the resources in the world that we might want. Our digital team was was actually quite experienced at making, finding solutions. Um, and so we, we, we they've been really integral in, um, and Travis Dobb, the head of our, our digital um, uh, content and and Emily Carpeau, one of our um, produ- senior producers, the two of them, you know, as along with our as as I mentioned, our engineers and crew, IT, everybody at WTA have been so creative and figuring this out. Um, you know, the it, the conventions are, are a great example, Robin. I have to tell you because we we conventions take months and months of planning. We had a very elaborate team for for a, a year out, really planning our conventions, making site visits, talking to vendors, um, making you know contracts with vendors, and and you know, starting in March, bit by bit, we just started taking things off that table until there was essentially nothing left. Um, And uh, we did conventions a very different way. Um, And uh, yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see whether or not Conventions ever fully go back to the um, massive uh, production that they have been, um, and what, you know there were a lot of things about these virtual conventions that were really satisfying for the for the electorate and for the vote viewers. So it'll be really interesting to see. I do want to say just what, you know what you were saying about some of our reporters and producers do you know are going on the road are putting themselves in situations you know like the White House where there's been. Uh, several breakouts Um, they're doing it like reporters often do they're they're going to places that they know are risky because the story is important and telling the audience what is happening Um, not all of it can be done by remote Um, and so i'm so grateful for all the reporters ours and others who are willing to do that um, and uh, who are taking those risks personally and are uh, protecting themselves as best they can but uh you know recognizing that there is risk it's not the same really as um you know the very courageous war correspondents over the years, but it is in that vein of being of recognizing risk, but um, uh, doing everything possible to mitigate it, but tell the story.
0: So, Sarah, even if you were to snap your fingers tomorrow and have the vaccine and you know full U.S. herd immunity and whatnot, you wouldn't necessarily go back to the old normal of scrambling, scrambling a camera crew or sending them to the scene, uh, committing budget and everything to do it. Now that it can be done in a leaner, faster. Uh, more cost-effective way. I mean, as, as you said, you, you you had worried before that viewers would pillory you if they had to deal with Zoom too much or if it if it kind of looked rainy. And we have learned and all the other news organizations have learned. I mean, NPR has learned that this could be done at home, that you can do it in a way that you are going to get a, a, a fall-off some of quality, but uh, the, the velocity with which you can innovate and get stories and uh, scrap things and not have to put people on planes uh, is a lot faster.
1: Yeah, I think that that's, you know, there's some silver linings in this. And and one of them is in, in for instance, you know, when we want to do a story and get reactions, say, from college students about, um, uh, you know, the pandemic or something else. We, in, the, in the past, we would send out camera crews, we'd pick one campus, we'd go there, we'd spend, you know, several hours trying to convince lots of people to talk to us. Now we can get, you know, voices from around the country from multiple locations with a social call out, asking. Asking people if they you know will talk to us uh, what their point of view is researching who they are and and and, and be sure to identify them accurately and re- and then record an interview over the computer in a few hours we can get reaction and input on a wide variety of stories very quickly in a way that in the traditional model we couldn't and so I think that will stay I think largely that will stay and is a great great outcome but you know I have to say as a journalist what I miss most is the uh, it, it is the proximity of working together in the newsroom, um, and I think it's sad to see, mm. you know, some news organizations. I think it was the New York Daily News decided that uh, announced that they were going to um, not renew their lease on their newsroom and continue in a model uh, of of working remotely. I think that is uh, unfortunate. I think newsrooms need. Um, to exist in the future. The proximity of working with your colleagues, the serendipitous moments of overhearing a colleague who's working on one story and saying, hey, you know what, I know a source on that, let me help you, or I heard you working on that, let me recommend, did you see this article? All those kind of serendipitous Opportunities, um, and not to mention just the human interaction, as we all miss in every industry, that, you know, checking in with your colleagues, Zoom calls that we all have all day long can feel very transactional. You know, I called you because I need this information and you've given it to me now. Thanks. Goodbye. You know, you miss the opportunities in the hallway. How's your mom? How's your, how are your kids? Um, how you doing? You know, that kind of stuff is, is the glue that makes news organizations and so many businesses work. Um, and while we've all adjusted necessarily to the situation, I really look forward to, returning to that. It may not be as many people, it may not look exactly the same under the one roof, um, but I do hope that newsrooms thrive uh, in the very near future.
0: Sarah, I have to ask you in a few minutes we have left, what is that handover going to look like? What is inauguration going to look like? What if uh, this continues, this persists well into January and you have uh, Trump and his backers not accepting the outcome? If you have people show up, if it becomes, a, you know, already if you look at Lafayette, Park in the area around the White House. It's significantly cordoned off. I mean, you can't look back at at Watergate and find an analog to this situation. There's, there's no, again, there's no playbook for this.
1: No, but I do think that you know the reporting we have is that so many groups uh, have been um, uh, uh, confirming that they expect a smooth. Peaceful transition uh, and inauguration. You know, inauguration will look very different because the pandemic. I think is is one really important factor um, that we'll we'll have to see how that plays out. That'll be interesting to see. You know, do you have balls and so forth in a in a pandemic, um, or how many people would come to the mall and in for an inaugural event? But I do think that the at the end of the day, we'll see how these next few weeks, critical weeks, play out. But um, you know, there's many people involved in that who are um, reassuring that a peaceful peaceful moment like that. We've never had a a conflict at the transition of PowerPoint in this country. And um, I think many people who are responsible for that are saying that they don't expect that to happen this year either. Um, But there's many things that have to play out between now and then, and certainly a lot of very concerning concerning signs right now that we're not headed smoothly in that direction right now.
0: Close us out, Sarah Just. Tell us about any new uh, things in the offing at NewsHour, digital bells and whistles, side projects, interesting guests.
1: Oh, thanks, Robin. Um, Well, for your audio listeners, I hope that you will um, also consider following the uh, America Interrupted podcast that the PBS NewsHour produces, America Interrupted. You can get it wherever you hear your podcasts. Um, It is a great listen from the PBS NewsHour newsroom. We've been covering lots of timely stories, mostly about the pandemic and how it has disrupted our lives. We have an episode um, coming up very soon about colleges um, and uh, how they are adjusting to the pandemic A lot. Of I have college-age kids. Uh, A lot of people are um, really concerned about what what does this period of time mean for higher ed in this country? What kind of experience are college students having if they're mostly doing their courses online? And, of course, what happens when a lot of them get on airplanes and in cars and come home at the Thanksgiving break? Um, So we'll be looking at that starting next week uh, on a new episode of America Interrupted and many other great episodes there, too.
0: Sarah Just, I love your company. Please come back on.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure, Robin. Thank you. And next time, I hope we'll be able to do it over delicious uh, kebab lunch that we were long overdue for.
0: Oh, yes, in northern Virginia and Persian <laughs> food. Sarah Just, executive producer of PBS NewsHour, uh, veteran of ABC News. Uh, thank you so much for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Full disclosure, special thanks to my wonderful, trusty engineer, John Valentine. Subscribe on NPR One, Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts at link Again, we now air in much of Northern Virginia and in Washington, D.C. on WERA 96.7 FM. Sunday mornings at 11. Tune in. On Facebook and Twitter, we're at Full D Radio. You can direct message me. MP3, WAV, WFH. It's all good. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week.